0: Welcome to the 13th episode of Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. Every fortnight, we enter Room 106, the subterranean vault into which all new planning information is fed, and extract the key things you need to know. The podcast is called Room 106, after Room 101, the place in George Orwell's novel 1984 that contains a prisoner's deepest fears. We are suggesting that for ourselves and for some of our audience, there can be a sense of foreboding about digesting the latest developments in the sector. It's called Room 106
1: instead of Room 101 in honour of the tortuous Section 106 negotiations that can take
0: place when councils are trying to agree how much developers should pay for infrastructure. Today we're joined by planning senior reporter Chris Caulfield. Ready for a return trip to Room 106, Chris? Ready as I'll ever be. Great. So, coming up, the key news stories of the past fortnight or so and why they might be important for you. We'll explore reports that guidance intended to prevent worsening water pollution is blocking development of 100,000 homes. We'll find out why a city
1: council has isolated its planning department for two weeks to clear an application's backlog. And
0: we'll report on the first application to be sent direct to the planning inspectorate that a council has been stripped of planning powers under the government's special measures regime. I'll
1: also be highlighting
0: one of the quirkiest stories from the past two weeks. Finally, in the deep dive section, I'll be talking to regular planning correspondent David Blackman about why increasing numbers of planning consultancies are deciding to become employee-owned. By the
1: end of the show, you should know enough to minimise social anxiety at any planning gathering.
0: So, time to face the music. Ready to go in? I guess so.
2: Let's do this. Well, here
0: we are again in Room 106, the repository in which all new planning information collects. And the planning story that's probably consumed the most column inches in the Nationals in the past week has been the story about the impact of the Natural England guidance on house building, with reports of 100,000 new homes being blocked by the impact of the guidance. Chris, I think this is something that uh, you've been looking at, Could you remind us about the background to this?
2: Yeah, Natural England is seeking to protect endangered waters around the country. It wants to do that by introducing guidance to limit nutrients that uh, impact the water, particularly nitrates and phosphates, uh, which can act as an accelerant for certain types of plants that disrupt the natural world. Basically, nitrates cause plant life in waters to bloom. That's not a good thing because the uh, extra plant life, um, it takes all the oxygen out of the water, and that can really destabilise these protected waters with rare wildlife.
0: Okay, so there's a problem and, and they're seeking to prevent
2: it getting worse, is that right? Yes, yes. And how does their guidance seek to prevent the problem? Well, they object to plans that create unfavorable conditions due to excess nutrients on these sites. So if you have a planning application and it's found to increase the nitrates that flow into protected waters, they will object. Uh, The advice restricts to 74 councils. Uh, This was increased after the advice was extended to an additional 42 councils um, in March. The councils are also bunched together into catchment areas. So you've got things like Solent, Herefordshire, Kent, Somerset, Cornwall, for example, and anything within those areas have to fulfill the well, the advice of Natural England, I guess
0: they have to follow the the Natural England advice, which, which basically says that if your scheme is going to worsen the water quality in these in these protected areas, then it can't go ahead without suitable mitigation.
2: Exactly, yeah, and um, that's causing a bit of a blockage at the moment.
0: Okay, and why is it that building a house can worsen the um, the nutrient levels?
2: Well, as, as one councillor put it to me, um, you wouldn't buy a house without a toilet. Um, so I think a lot of what we create on a day-to-day basis might end up flowing into um, protected waters.
0: But the reason why this story's had some additional coverage this week is that the Home Builders Federation have done a survey which tries to
2: put a number on the amount of homes
0: affected. Is
2: that is that right? Yeah, that's correct. They say now that up to 100,000 houses uh, are being delayed uh, for a variety of reasons, but essentially because of this advice. OK, so 100,000
0: homes, I guess. Yeah, so, so flats and uh, will be included as well. And, uh, so how, what do they include in these figures?
2: Well, the figures are basically from this second tranche. The original seven uh, catchment areas had already impacted 60,000 homes. I'm presuming, I mean, I don't know the details of this yet, but I'm presuming those originals were selected because they were the most vulnerable. And the new catchment areas are bringing in another 40,000 homes uh, onto the the delay table, I guess. So now it's a nice even 100,000 homes.
0: Okay. And they're saying that if you add up the amount of decisions that can't be taken to... Allocate a site for housing in a local
2: plan. Yeah, local plans, outline applications, reserve matters, discharge of conditions. Everything's just been frozen.
0: All of these decisions that have to be made to push homes through the planning process and none of them can be made and that, and that that's what's leading to this. Yeah.
2: Okay. So does the government accept that these figures are, are accurate? Uh, well, we approached them, but they declined to comment specifically on the matter Uh, and instead give us a a general statement. Uh, A government spokesman told us that we want to protect the environment and deal with the buildup of nutrient pollution while building the homes this country needs. While house building is not the primary cause of nutrient buildup, we want to introduce measures quickly to allow development to move forward. Okay, so I guess they're saying that they're going to try and solve the
0: problem, um, that increased nutrient pollution isn't a good idea, house building is a good idea, and they want to find an answer, but they haven't got one. Yes, I guess. Pretty much. Well, one of the thing I'm slightly confused by in all this is that obviously this problem, as you say, there been a, a sort of an earlier group that was that has been affected by this for a couple of years. And we produced quite a lot of coverage, maybe a year or so ago, about methods that have been found to mitigate this problem. So uh, largely, I think, by reducing nutrient output in other parts of the authorities concerned, so that effectively that cancelled out the increase created by the house building. And The method that was advised by Natural England to do that was challenged in the courts, but survived that challenge. I'd been under the impression that this problem was on the way to being solved, but
2: it doesn't sound like it. You can buy a farm and um, send all your nitrates over there type thing, a bit like the, the carbon offsetting Exactly, by, by not farming it anymore
0: and not putting any more fertiliser on it, you know, uh, exactly.
2: Yeah, that's what they had previously. Um, I don't know how it affects these new areas. No, it's interesting. It doesn't sound like they you were
0: know, whatever's been done before and whether there have been some successful mitigation methods used in some places, it sounds like there's certainly not a, um, a comprehensive answer as yet. A whole bunch of idle farmers waiting to offset. Yes. And then the chief planner, Joanna Averley, has said that the government is considering updating national planning guidance to address the nitrates issue, I understand.
2: Yes, she wrote to um, all local authorities to to say that this was very much on their mind and uh, they could even potentially look at sort of how this impacts five-year housing land supply. Okay. well, thank you very much for that, Chris. Now,
0: you've also, as I understand it, been looking at a city council, which, as luck would have it, is affected by the nitrates issue but it's been in the news for different reasons because it's isolated its planning department for two weeks to clear an applications backlog.
2: Uh, yeah that's Portsmouth City Council. They've had a, a, a backlog of planning applications caused by water pollution issues so the nitrate neutrality that we just discussed, staff shortages and it's all been compounded by the impact of uh, COVID-19 it's forced the council's planning department to cocoon itself, which was your words, thanks so much for putting that in, uh, into uh, normal day-to-day external ex- interactions have been cut off for two weeks. OK, so what is it exactly that they've stopped their team from doing? Pretty much everything that doesn't involve dealing with a backlog. When we approached them, a council spokesperson told us uh, that pre-application discussions, meetings, phone calls, emails, and other day-to-day activities have been uh, restricted so that the available staff can focus 100% upon issuing decisions. Okay, and how big is the application backlog that has prompted them to do this? We were told 300 applications, uh, but I understand other local authorities are actually um, have have larger backlogs. So it'd be interesting to see how widespread this issue is and, and where else the planning shutdowns are taking place.
0: Yeah, it'd be interesting to know if other authorities are, are doing the same sort of thing. What kind of timescale do they say they're going to run this process for and um, when will we know how effective the um, the isolation approach has been?
2: Well, we should know soon. Um, it's supposed to run until today, and we have approached them to find out how successful it's been, uh, which, I mean, they've not got back to us yet, but it'll be interesting to see how many they've managed to get through or indeed, if it's actually caused any of its own problems, because if you're not taking calls or emails, that might have some sort of knock-on effect.
0: Yeah, OK. Well, that sounds like it will be an interesting one to follow. Chris, many thanks for uh, uh, for those two. Um, and, um, John, I think you've been looking at uh, another story, which is about the first planning application in a council that's facing sanctions under the government's special measures programme the, the first planning application that's bypassed the council and gone straight to the planning inspectorate? Yes, that's right. Again, what what's the council concerned? So it's Uttlesford District Council in Essex. Okay, and can you remind us why it was sanctioned?
1: So in February, Uttlesford became the first local authority since 2015 to be designated under the Special Measures Programme, and it was designated because more than 11% of its decisions on major development applications in the two years up to March 2020 were subsequently overturned as appeal. So under the Special Measures Programme, councils that have more than 10% of their decisions on applications overturned as appeal are at risk of designation. And if they're designated, then developers are allowed to submit applications in that area directly to the planning inspectorate rather than to the council.
0: Okay, and how does the sanction change the council's planning powers?
1: So normally the developer would submit the application directly to the council. But if the council is designated, then it has the option to submit the application directly to the planning inspectorate. And in this case, there's a developer that has submitted plans to convert and demolish former school buildings to provide
0: 96 new homes, a swimming pool and a tennis court, and that's in Saffron Walden. So how many similar sanctions have there been in the past and how usual is it for developers to make use of this option where that sanction applies? So there haven't been many designations at
1: all. The Special Measures Programme began in 2013, but since then there's only been, apart from Uttlesford, three other councils that have been designated and the last one to be designated before Uttlesford was in January 2015. So there's been a big gap before the designation early this year. And in the past, very few developers have made use of this option to apply directly to the planning inspectorate. So we know that, as far as we know, only one application has been made under the programme, which was subsequently rejected by the planning inspectorate.
0: Do we know why developers seem to be a bit reluctant to make use of it?
1: Well, we know that, according to experts in the sector, developers tend to want to have a good relationship with the local council and they might feel that going over their heads to the planning inspector will upset that relationship. And in addition to that, applications that are made to the planning inspector cannot then be appealed if they're refused, whereas they can be with a local authority. So you get two bites of the cherry.
0: Okay. So in some ways, Uttlesford might feel it's a bit unlucky because it's there. Are, I think there are five authorities that sort of fell beneath the threshold for this sanction, and it's the only one of them to have uh, actually had the sanction imposed. And then there are also 13 authorities who didn't meet the threshold on another measure to do with speed of decision-making. And when we last reported on this, I think we said that none of them had the sanction imposed. Is is there any news on that? Have have, have the government imposed sanctions on anybody else apart from Utlesford? No.
1: So we know that the government hasn't designated any further authorities since Utlesford. And as of whether they're still considering doing so, we're still waiting for confirmation from the housing department on that. But according to the local government association's planning advisory service, the government is not intending to designate any more councils this year for speed of decision making.
0: OK, so I thought it might feel a bit unlucky that they're the only one that has faced that consequence.
1: Yes, that's right, because certainly there were plenty of others that fell under the, the various thresholds.
0: OK, fantastic. Well, thank you very much, John. it would be interesting to see if anybody else uh, tries to use that route in Uthlesford. More details of all these stories can, of course, be found on planningresource.co.uk. But I'm going to have to leave you in this whirlwind of planning information because now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. Well, I now need to clamber into the part of the Room 106 catacomb where original planning magazine analysis is gathered. I'm hoping to find our regular correspondent, David Blackman, who's been looking into the apparent trend for planning consultants to move into employee ownership. Ah, there he is. David, good to see you. Ah, oh, hello, Richard. Good weekend. Yes, uh, very good, David, very good. A bit strenuous work climbing up to these heights to, uh, uh, to find you. But um, anyway, you've been looking at... There have been a couple of planning consultancies that moved into employee ownership
3: recently. And um, just remind us about the the, the firms that have made that shift. Well, the ones which have made waves recently, of course, have been um, DLP and Quad, who have both uh, turned themselves into what's known as employee ownership trusts. But they're not the only ones. Uh, In the course of my investigation... I discovered that uh, a a number of other firms have gone down this route in over recent months. HGH, of course, Roger Heifer's outfit, um, is one, and another one is Terence O'Rourke, so there's pretty big names there. And there is also a history of this as well. Both Turley's and Litchfield's are both employee-owned, although under a different structure to the Employee Ownership Trust.
0: Okay, so what is it that prompts these firms to make this shift?
3: Um... A lot of it has comes down to succession planning. Um, when the original founder or the original partners want to move on and they want to you know, perhaps crystallise their gains or retire, um, that's, that was certainly the case with DLP, with uh, Simon James and his partners, and I think to a certain extent with Quad as well. The choice is either sell up to another larger firm, like Barton Wilmore recently did, or it's to try and um, set up a, a new form of structure
0: David, sorry, just to be clear there, I mean, I hadn't seen the suggestion that any of those people at DLP or Quad were seeking to move on at this stage. Um, You're saying that it's when these kind of senior partners are thinking they might want to prepare the ground for a situation where they can start to sort of get the sort of value for their shares in the company.
3: Absolutely, yes, yes. As they're approaching retirement or they're thinking about re- approaching retirement is often the, the trigger point for this kind of thing to happen.
0: Okay, okay. And, and could it also just simply be when an existing owner is thinking, you know, I'd like to realise, you know, maybe some of my assets?
3: Yes, absolutely too, yes. And importantly, traditionally with partnerships, um, part part of this is due to the um, increasing problems that people have passing on partnerships because often, you know, younger Younger would-be partners have a lot more financial commitments now than maybe would have been the case, sort of thirty or forty years ago, the heydays of the partnership. So they can't necessarily, you know, if you're still paying off a student loan and have a have a very large mortgage to pay for, an, and a young family, um, you perhaps don't have the resources to be able to go to the bank and and uh, and suggest another financial commitment in the form of a of a stake in a partnership.
0: Oh, okay. So the more traditional format would involve people borrowing money to essentially buy a stake. In the partnership,
3: yes, yes, yeah, yeah, Typically, partner X would have been re- reaching retirement age, and he would have uh, he or she would have then sort of cast around and looked for a, a younger person in the practice to effectively take their share on. But that doesn't seem to happen so much these days, which is why firms are increasingly looking for these new forms of ownership. Okay,
0: so this is a way of transferring ownership which doesn't require financial investment by the staff who are acquiring a bit of ownership in the
3: firm. No, because the um, the employee ownership trust. So this is a mechanism which was established about ten years ago by the uh, by the then coalition government. The employee ownership trust buys the shares or any or any shares or equity from the existing owners. So the individuals within the firm don't. Then they receive. You know the the, the employees then receive their remuneration from the trust in the forms of perhaps dividends or other, or other mechanisms.
0: So it gives an opportunity for. Senior staff or the original founders of the firm, perhaps to realize some of their assets, it's seen as a way of dealing with succession issues, so bringing maybe people who weren't part of the original team you know into more senior roles. What are the other things that can prompt firms to do this
3: well I think um I think that and also the desire to retain the firm's integrity, so you know sometimes the original founders don't necessarily want to. Bring their business or incorporate, integrate their business into a into a larger firm. They actually want to maintain the in, the integrity and the independence of, of the business. And of course, you know that's you know, very very important in the world of planning, where you know you know the relationships that you have as a consultant with your clients is very important. So independence, retaining independence, is a is often a, a very strong driver. And does it help them
0: retain independence because? it gives them an alternative way of realising the value of the asset. You know, if they didn't have this method, the attraction of selling out to a big corporate might be overwhelming.
3: Yes, absolutely, yeah. Perhaps another thing to mention would be that um, there are certain sort of financial incentives in this as well. So, so the way in which one receives one's shares back is one is paid over several years, over a set period of time. So the original shareholders then you know, receive their, their money back over, over, over several years. And a really crucial thing here is that Those repayments not subject to capital gains tax, which, of course, is a big advantage for those owners. And also um, the individual employees could receive up to £3,600 per annum in dividends or bonuses from the employee owner trust tax free. So there there are financial incentives here for both the original owners and also for the employees within the firm.
0: That's very interesting. Did anybody mention any downsides of the approach?
3: Um, well I mean it means that uh, from the point of view of the owner you don't get a big payday um, which of course you can if, if you sell out lock stock and barrel and of course you know in the case of some owners that could be considerable and potentially a potentially life-changing of course there's also the downside that the employee owned firm will have to repay its shares over several years out of profits so of course that means there aren't there won't be quite as many profits to reinvest in other ways
0: okay so essentially they've got to the money that would otherwise be pure profit has to go into it effectively yeah. um, buying the stake of the uh, of the original owners. Exactly.
3: Yes, paying back that stake. Yes.
0: But nonetheless, it seems that a number of quite high profile firms are are going down this route.
3: Yes. Yes, and I think the other thing as well is that for many planning consultants, they actually like it because they like to retain their independence, and the, I think they like to um, they. they it, it kind of suits the um, perhaps more individualistic streak of some planning consultants, and of course, it also um, a lot of former owners like the idea of giving something back to their staff as well. So I think that's another. There's a whole mix of factors in here which are which are encouraging people to go down this route.
0: Very interesting, David. It'd be interesting to see if this time next year we we hear those up because I think it, the, the announcement seems to come out at the beginning of the financial year doesn't it so yes. i guess we probably won't hear loads more about other people going down this route until this time next year
3: yes and i think there's also um it's it's also sort of really taken off in the architecture world but it's also becoming a lot of interest in other professional services feels like accountancy and law and so on so yeah you know, one can imagine there'll be there'll be quite a lot of activity generally in this in this space and and, and focus on it so yes watch the space david Thank you very much.
0: I'm going to leave you in the heights of the catacomb. I'm going to, I'm going to scale back down again. And uh, I hope to see you here again soon.
3: Very good. You too, Richard.
0: Right. Now to find John again so he can select his reader's choice. The story that's caught the eye of our readers without necessarily being a portentous planning issue. Ah, oh, there he is. Hello, Richard. Hi, John. What have you got for us this week? Well, my quirky
1: story of the past fortnight that has attracted lots of interest from our readers is about an enforcement notice from a council demanding that a developer rebuilds a Grade 2-listed 18th century pub that was subject to an unauthorised demolition last year. So the council in question is Ribble Valley Borough Council in Lancashire, and it issued an enforcement notice against Donellan Trading Limited after it demolished the Punch Bowl Inn at Hurst Green near Preston last year without the correct planning permission. And last week the developer announced that it was appealing against the notice. So it's an appeal decision that we um, that our readers may want to keep their eyes on.
0: So if they do have to rebuild it it won't be the uh, the first time a developer has been forced to rebuild a pub that's been knocked down without planning permission
1: yes that's right there was a very famous case in west london where the carlton tavern in Maidervale was torn down in 2015 without planning permission and westminster council got a court injunction to stop the developer turning it into 10 flats and following an unsuccessful legal bid by the developer a judge backed the council and ordered the building to be rebuilt brick by brick and it actually opened its doors last year having been rebuilt to the apparent joy of
0: locals. Probably visited by many a frustrated planning officer who's uh, seen developers uh, ignore planning rules.
1: Yes that's right
0: it's a kind of a totem
1: to the powers of the planning system.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: And it opened just in time for um, lockdown restrictions to be lifted, so it was good timing.
0: Great. Okay. well, thanks very much, John. I think our work is done. Chris is here with us as well. Let's get out before there are any more announcements or decisions.
1: Fantastic. That's another fortnight summarised. Yes, we'll be back in two weeks to give you another update on the key things happening in the sector.
0: Our thanks to producer Joe Walker from Rethink. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts and to get a daily bulletin of planning news plus weekly analysis, specialist bulletins and our quarterly print magazine, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.